Welcome to the SCV Birth Center podcast. I am Renee, the midwife, here to help you through the roller coaster of pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. I hope you enjoy this next episode. If you have any questions or topic ideas, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook at m.me backslash SCV Birth Center. Let's dive in. And go. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chatting with the Midwife. Yay. I am super excited about this podcast. I really have um, a ton of fun doing them, and I hope that they are useful to you, and I hope that the information, you find it to be um, relevant and accurate. And if you have any questions, concerns, or you just want to be part of our discussion, please comment and, um, you know, I don't know, write a review, comment below, let's, let's have a conversation. Awesome. So we're always open to discussion and uh, different points of view. So today... As you all know, I am a midwife. I'm a licensed midwife and a certified professional midwife, and I work in the state of California. And so in California, licensed midwives, we are licensed by the California Medical Board, and we are um, we go through a fairly rigorous training uh, as licensed midwives or certified professional midwives. We do all of our training out of hospital for the most part, and we... Um, we're held to a pretty high standard, I think, and we're also, we're very, in our practice here at the Santa Clarita Birth Center or the SCV Birth Center, we are an evidence-based practice. We're an accredited birth center, so we are required to have written policies and procedures, and we are required to prove with three peer-reviewed medical journals that what we're doing and how we're behaving in our practice, we can support in the medical literature. So it's not just anecdotal. We are... Um, we, we really try to get the most recent current research. So today, we're going to talk about uh, your due date. And we know that most in the, in the U.S., I think, very popular right now, if, um, is to induce pregnancies, right? If you've yeah, not had your baby, point. pretty much between 39 and 41 weeks in the medical model, it's a big push to be induced, and we talk about this due date. So let's just unravel where we even get this due date yeah. from. Because it's confusing. Because people mm -hmm. come in and say, how pregnant am I? How could I possibly be eight weeks pregnant when I have my period? And I know I wasn't yeah. pre pregnant on the first day of my period, right? So let's just talk about what this due date is and how we come up with it. So the due date is based on 40 weeks based on the first day of your last period. So we know you weren't pregnant because you just got a period. But we base that on something called Nagel's rule. That is this guy Nagel, I don't know how that, I'm actually gonna, um, Nagel's rule. While you look that up, uh -huh. what happens, fun, fun question. Yeah. What happens if a woman is not having her periods? Yeah, so then early ultrasounds are really useful. Okay. But if you're not having your period and you still got pregnant, and that's happened before, you, there's, an, there's an ovulation that can happen, but there's something going on with the uterine lining, that there's no bleeding, there's sure. some hormonal issue going on. Um, but if you do find yourself pregnant and you don't know when your last cycle was, we do know that early ultrasound is very good at identifying a due date. Yeah. That doesn't mean that's when you're going to have the baby. That just means within a five-week window from 37 to 42 weeks in our law in California, we know that that due window, that five-week season is when you're going to have this baby. 
but Nagel's rule says we calculate the due date. It's we know that most women are pregnant for 280 days, right? So we take the first day of your last period and then we calculate from there and it's like minus three months plus a week or something like that or plus three months minus a week. Um, I forget where Nagel, who this guy was and where did it come from? Um, who is he? Nagel's rule, who is he? Um, and we've been using it as the way to identify pregnancy in, in the U.S. for a long time. So that's how we calculate it. We take it from the first day of your period. It's, it's, it's an estimation of when you're due. Now, we do know that based on the, <clears throat> excuse me, on the research that um, if you're having a 28-day cycle, we assume you ovulate day 14, and so conception is somewhere in that time between like 12 and 15 days of that cycle. Because you release an egg, and then that egg could be fertilized, right? So you could get sperm in there. So intimacy can happen right before ovulation because the sperm can get up in there and hang out for a little bit and live there. Because that cervical fluid we produce, that, that, that's how many people identify that they're ovulating. Mm -hmm. They're cervical fluid. That cervical fluid is actually... Um, food for sperm. It keeps the sperm alive so it can live long enough to travel up and get to the egg and fertilize the egg. And so we know that you produce the cervical fluid right before ovulation and then it goes away. And so we can conceive if there's intimacy like two days before ovulation up to a day after ovulation, you can fertilize an egg. And there is some theories about that's how you, the sex of the baby can be can sort of be predicted, I don't really know how accurate that is, based on, like, girl, sperm, can they swim slower, live longer, slow and steady wins the race. Ah. Boy sperm. Like, quick. Really quick Get and there. dies really fast. So, like, if you have intimacy, if you have sex the day after you ovulate, that boy sperm can swim really fast and get to the egg before it dies. Um, I, I don't really know if that's true or not, but there's like a, a theory. What are the wives, old wives, old wives tale? tale, old wives tale. There you go. If you're trying to have girls. Yeah. If so you're trying know, to have boys. <laughs> yes. So we know Nagel's rule is one standard way of identifying pregnancy and it's calculated by counting back three months from the last day, first day of your last period. And then you add seven days, right? So if your period were February 20th, you're going to add, you're going to count back three months. So that's November. And then if it's the 20th, you're going to add seven days. So the 27th so of November. Correct. 27th of November would be your estimated due date. Okay. Estimated due date. EDD or estimated date of confinement, EDC, same, same meaning, means we know estimated you're going to have this baby in about 280 days, and that's going to be about from, if we're using February 20, we're looking at May 27. But what we know is also women will gestate between 37 and 42 weeks. And um, as long as we are assessing fetal well-being once we get to 41 weeks, right? So a lot of people are induced because the baby hasn't been born yet, and they're heard like it's dangerous to stay pregnant after 41 weeks. is is a very common misunderstanding, actually. So it's not necessarily dangerous. It's not necessarily dangerous. As long as you're with a care provider 
that is doing fetal assessment after 41 weeks. Baby's okay, mom's okay. Baby's okay, mom's okay. Now, this is assuming we have a low-risk woman. She has no pre-existing conditions. We do not have a gestational diabetic that's on insulin or with uncontrolled sugars. We have a woman whose thyroid is being managed normally. We don't have anyone with high blood pressure, right? Assuming we have a low-risk mother, and age is not one of those factors that we're talking about right now, but we have normal blood pressures, normal blood sugars. We have, um, there's no preeclampsia. There's no placenta previa. There's no issues with where the placenta is, um, right? Low risk, healthy mom, healthy baby. What we do, and this is what many practices do, is they start what's called post-dates testing starting at 41 weeks. And that is to assess how is this baby doing inside your body? We're going to measure the amniotic fluid, and that's called an amniotic fluid index. And if your amniotic fluid is above 5, um, um, if it's above 5 and the baby is put on a monitor, right? So they put a little... Um, electronic fetal monitor on the baby, on your belly. So it's like a belt, right? It's like a belt. Yeah. Belly belt. Belly belt, and it's got a um, a little monitor thing that's going to go on there that's going to calculate the baby's heart rate. It can hear the baby's heart rate. And it's on a monitor, and so you can see a printout. And it's do-do-do-do-do-do-do, right? That's what it sounds like. And so we want to look at the baby to see that the baby's heart rate is variable, that there's good fetal movement and good fetal heart rate changes within a normal range for 20 minutes. That means the baby's, it's called a non-stress test. We wanna make sure that when you are not in stress, there's non-stress, this is not a stress test. Like that's what you get when you think you're having a heart attack or something. Uh, not like, if you think you're having like a heart attack. Like an EKG or where yeah, they yeah, measure. Yeah, yeah, like a stress test, like, like you'll do that for your heart. Like, <clears throat> let's see if we can challenge your heart sure. with stress to see how it does. That's called a stress test. When we're looking at fetal surveillance at 41 weeks, we're doing a non-stress test. And that means let's take a look at this baby under a non-stress condition. You're not in labor, and we want to see how the baby's doing. The baby should do well mm -hmm. um, because there's no stress. Imagine if the baby's not doing well with no stress, how is it going to do with stress? So that is an indicator that you would A, need an induction, or B, need to have a surgical birth because the baby isn't going to tolerate labor. And those are really good reasons to have a, a belly birth, a cesarean birth, right? If the baby can't tolerate your contractions. Totally appropriate. So we want to start doing fetal surveillance or non-stress testing starting at 41 weeks, and we do it every two to three days because we know it's not for an infinite lifespan. We know the placenta has a finite lifespan. So we want to assess how is the placenta functioning. If the placenta is functioning well, then it's well profusing of oxygen. So the baby is getting enough oxygen, so it has this lovely varying heart rate that's between you know 110 and 160, right? 110 beats to 160 beats per minute, and the baby's heart rate will go up and back to baseline and up. Those are called accelerations. The baby's having lovely accelerations. The baby's not having any heart decelerations for an extended period of time. That would not be reassuring, right? So you get put on a monitor, and we're looking for at least a 20-minute straight strip of the baby having good reactivity. Babies do go into sleep cycles. So we know that if we have a 20-minute cycle where the baby's heart rate is pretty what we call flat. They're sleeping. They're, they may be sleeping or 
the placenta might not be perfusing mm. well. So we then say, here's some sugar, mom. Let's see if we can wake the baby up. Maybe the baby is sleeping. Here's some sugar. Oh, I drank some sugar and the baby totally woke up and now is this reactive strip. That's lovely. What we do know is you cannot trick the non-stress test. So you drinking sugar, if the placenta is not perfusing well and the baby's actually not in a good state, no matter how much sugar you drink, we're not going to get a reaction from the baby, right? So don't be concerned that you tricked the test because yeah. you can't trick the test, right? The placenta is either functioning well or it's not. No amount of sugar is really going to make a difference. But if the baby's sleeping, it's certainly going to wake the baby up. And then we're going to have a good reactive strip. So that's called a non-stress test. And we, combi we combine that with an amniotic fluid index, an AFI. And if we have an AFI of 5 or above, we, and we have a reactive strip, we know that we have a baby that is so far doing fine. It is, there's no medical indication of an induction. If we have an amniotic fluid between, in our practice, if it's between 4 and 5, we say, and the baby is reactive, we ask for an additional 24 hours for the mother to hydrate well mm -hmm. with electrolytes because we know we can influence, if the placenta is functioning well, we can influence the amniotic fluid index by how much water you're drinking. That's why we tell women in our practice to drink three liters of water a day. So much. Yeah, because you provide the amniotic fluid for your baby. Right. So say you have the flu and you're 41 weeks pregnant and you've just been, you've had a fever, low-grade fever, you've had body aches, you're not eating, you can't really drink much. If I checked your amniotic fluid, it's probably going to be low. But then if you drank a liter of fluid and checked that amniotic fluid within a couple of hours, we know you can influence that fluid level by like two points within wow. a few hours. So then we say super hydrate before you go in for your AFI. If your fluid level is good, then we say you can continue to be pregnant. And we just had a client, actually, that went to 43 weeks gestation. Wow. And we were really anxious, actually. Yeah. It is against you the law. Yeah, you can't birth. Correct. It. it is against the law for midwives in the state of California to catch a baby after 42 weeks. So we did transfer her to an obstetrician. And um, he continued to do fetal surveillance on the baby. And she was going. she just continued to stay pregnant because there was no medical indication. And she actually had a family history... Her mother had a history of going beyond 42 weeks mm -hmm. in her three previous pregnancies. Wow. So there was a familial history for long gestation. And I was getting really anxious. It was 42 weeks and two days, and I was a little bit climbing out of my skin. I bet, I bet she was, too. <laughs> and she was, too. Fair enough. And everybody in our culture, everybody around her was... was oh, yeah. And, and rightly so. Everybody had a lot of anxiety. I thought you couldn't be pregnant that long. How do we know the baby's okay? That baby's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in there. Yeah, that's always something you hear after like 41 weeks. Right. Everyone's oh my freaking gosh, out the baby's just getting head. big in there. And I always tell our clients, in my personal experience, my first son came at 41 and five days, and he was seven pounds four. And my second son came on his due date at 40 weeks, and he was just under nine pounds. So my boys, one gestated significantly longer than the other, but the one that had the longest gestation was actually smaller. He wasn't small for gestational age. There was nothing wrong with my right. placenta. Totally normal size. Totally normal size. He just needed to grow. Had he come at 40 weeks, he would have been a little skinny mini. He would have mm -hmm. been quite small, actually. He probably would have been six 
pounds or under. Wow. Right? Because my first kid was normal average size for me. I'm a fairly, you know, I'm an average size person, more on the petite side than the big side. You know, I'm like 5'6", and I weigh about, you know, 110 pounds, 112 pounds, right? So a 7-pound, 4-ounce baby is a totally appropriate size for me. Um, a 9-pound baby, under 9 pounds, was a totally appropriate size baby for me as well, who came out of my body, no problem, easier than my 7-pounder. Wow. But he was my second baby, so Thank seconds goodness. are often easier. Yeah. And he was in an optimal fetal position, which we'll talk about in a later podcast. So it's a myth that that going longer it makes like a Correct. giant baby that Correct. will never come out. That is a myth. That is a myth. Now, unless, of course, remember, we're... we're excluding high-risk women. Right, right. We're assuming your blood sugars are normal. We're, we're assuming your diet is adequate. We're assuming you don't have any thyroid issues or any other pre-existing conditions. Um, and, uh, yes, so it is a myth for low-risk women. So don't let that stress you out. So don't let that stress you out, although it's stressful. So anyway, so this woman was 42 weeks and two days. And we know that up to this point, she's had multiple ultrasounds at this point, ascertaining that the placenta was functioning well, the baby was reactive, her amniotic fluid was excellent, and we continued to be pregnant. But nonetheless, knowing the data, I was still anxious because of our cultural norms. So we met, and we had like a two-hour face-to-face appointment, um, equally for her as it was for me, to dispel both of our fears. So I went to a database that we pay for. It's called UpToDate, which is all this current medical data. And I went to up to date to see what they said about post dates. And this is what it said, quoting from up to date 2019. Wow, very up to date. Okay, very up to date. It was like February 2019, whatever the current research was. Timing of delivery in expectantly managed pregnancies. That's what we're talking about, right? We have a woman, we are expectantly managing her. We're watchful and waiting. We're making sure that the baby, we're doing fetal surveillance, making sure the baby is still safe in the environment which indicates to us that the placenta is functioning well and the baby's doing well in the environment. Quote, it says, we agree with the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG, right? In um, the U.S., we base a lot of our policies and procedures and guidelines on ACOG's protocols. And ACOG says, we, it says, up-to-date says, we agree with ACOG's recommendation to induce labor by 42 weeks and six, 42 plus six weeks of gestation in all pregnancies, period. 42 weeks and six days. We agree with the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology's recommendation to induce labor by 42 weeks and six days gestation in all pregnancies. Mind-blowing. Earlier induction is indicated for development of any of the usual obstetrical indications, including evidence of oligohydramnios, low amniotic fluid, abnormal fetal heart rate tracing, okay? If there's low fluid and there's abnormal fetal heart rate tracing, 100% we agree that induction is appropriate. But if finding that those things are normal... ACOG says they recommend induction by 40, 42 weeks and 6 days. That's almost 43. That's like 43 one day weeks. away from 43, That's 43 weeks. weeks. And then it says because so few pregnancies reach 43 weeks, there is no strong evidence on which to base a recommendation for the maximum gestational age 
at which an otherwise uncomplicated pregnancy should be delivered in the absence of a standard maternal or fetal indication. Wow. So what it says is, if there's no indication, stay pregnant. So this woman stayed pregnant to 42 weeks and five days. Mm -hmm. And we did more post-AIDS testing. Fluid was good. Fetal tracing was good. But we also did what was called a BPP, a biophysical profile. So with the biophysical profile, we're not just looking at the non-stress test, that is one component. We're looking at the amniotic fluid index. We're looking at fetal breathing exercising, right? You can see that the baby's practicing its breathing. We're looking at placenta placental integrity. We're looking at um, blood flow through the cord. And you get a number. Um, it's, you know, um, biophysical profile um, in fetal assessment. You get like an 8 out of 8 or a 10 out of 10 if you include non-stress testing in that, right? And so when you assign the points, a 10 out of 10 is the non-stress test plus all of those things, right? So I'm going to give you what those assessments are. Um, um, oh, shoot, I should have had this up sooner. Um, let me go to how we make those assessments. Assessing, assigning points. Um, we are basing it on... Um, we are basing it on... I'm so sorry that I'm taking too much time on this. It's okay. I'm gonna, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll add an addendum to this, and I'll write out what those points are. But we're looking that the fluid's good, the baby's doing breathing attempts, the non-stress test was good, the placenta is functioning well. So on this biophysical profile with the non-stress test, everything was good except our provider identified that the baby wasn't practice breathing, which is fine because remember, they're not breathing in utero, right? And he said, look, that, that's all fine, but it's an indicator that maybe labor is going to start tonight. And this was whatever, this was like at 5 p.m. And he said, so if we don't have labor start tonight, I would recommend an induction by the morning. And then she would have been 42 weeks and five days. And so she didn't go into labor that night. She was not really favorable for an induction, although we did um, start a, um, a, an induction with Pitocin. And um, she delivered that baby on 43 weeks. Wow. And the baby was 8 pounds 4. wasn't giant. Um, 8 pounds 4. So had that baby delivered at 40 weeks, the baby would have been about 6.5 pounds, right? Yeah. 7.5 pounds if it delivered, right? We figured that half a pound to a pound a week. Um, so at 43 weeks, totally abnormal-sized baby. She did wind up with a surgical birth. She did wind up with cesarean. Um, the baby didn't tolerate the induction well. No clinical findings. Yeah. The baby didn't have post-mature syndrome, so it wasn't all peely and saggy skin. The baby's blood sugars were normal. The baby nursed beautifully when he was born. The baby did not have to go into the neonatal intensive care unit. The baby went skin to skin right after the delivery, and it was a completely, in terms of a surgical birth, it was a completely uneventful, normal delivery. The next week, ironically, we had someone go to a full 42 weeks. And she had a beautiful vaginal delivery, and she also had about an 8-pound, eight, 4-ounce eight baby. Um, and that's our average size baby here at our birth center. It's usually like 8, eight to 8.5 eight pounds is our normal size. So the myth that the placenta suddenly stops working isn't true, right? It doesn't... Not all the fruit ripens on the same day. So yeah. we often use the analogy of cherry season. Because here in California, we have cherry trees in a certain, like up, up the mountain a little bit, in a little higher elevation. Cherry season in California 
is really, really, really short, right? I think it's really like a one-month season. Mm -hmm. I think it's June. And like Father's Day is always, for me, I always remember Father's Day is a great day to go cherry picking because the cherry trees are all full. But the season is the month of June. So think about your pregnancy as your pregnancy season. Your baby is going to be born within this five-week season. The majority of women will all deliver by 42 weeks. It's fairly uncommon to go beyond 42 weeks, but we know according to ACOG, 43 weeks is appropriate if all the testing is normal. Yeah. So if your care provider is saying you need to be induced because you're past your due date, that's not enough information. And what is the due date is 41 weeks, right? 40, or 40. 40 weeks. In so the it is US, kind of 40 weeks. It's kind of against it's against what the the actual all, yeah. evidence states. Correct. Correct. Now, could we do know that we have a viable, healthy baby. So if you get to 37 weeks, you have a full-term healthy baby in there. And if you have any pre-existing conditions or any, any anxiety issues or any reasons, it, you could harvest that baby at 37 weeks, right? And you have a full-term healthy baby. And some people choose to do that. They say, look, I don't want to be pregnant any more than 37 weeks or 38 weeks or 39 weeks or 40 weeks or 41, whatever that is for you. But you need to know that you're making these decisions based on the best outcome for you and your baby, Mm -hmm. not based on a fear tactic Mm -hmm. or without enough data. Mm -hmm. We, We are attached to you having the best birth possible for you, given all of the informed decision-making. Mm-hmm. We are not anti-cesarean birth. We're yeah. not anti-induction. We're not anti-hospital. You're just, an- you're, you're we're for... We're pro-informed inform- yeah. decisions, right? Empowering the mom Yeah, giving know. you the data and working with your team to identify if you're a good candidate to go beyond this typical window in the U.S., So we know that your season of birth is between 37 and 42 weeks. So you're likely, and most first-time mothers statistically go 7 to 10 days past their dates. And this is working on Nagel's rule. Mm -hmm. Now, we know we also can't, shouldn't be altering a due date based on an anatomy scan. We know that ultrasounds past, you know, 13 weeks are plus or minus in terms of accuracy of giving you a due date. So if you have long menstrual cycles, what if you have a 30-day cycle or a 35-day cycle, you're most excuse me, you're most likely not ovulating on day 14. Yeah. So we have to take that into consideration. If you um have totally irregular cycles, we really don't know when you're ovulating. So we can't assume that you're a 28-day cycle with a 14-day ovulation, giving us Nagel's rule of go back three months and add a week, right? We can't do it that way. Um, I have someone that knows, assuming she's telling the truth, which I assume she is, her intimacy dates absolutely do not correspond with day 14 of her cycle. Hmm. Her husband was out of town or her her partner. So not everyone um, has that day 14 ovulation. So what if you ovulated day 21 and we're basing it on... Day 14. Day 14. So your due date is actually a week later than you think it is. Right. Which now in in the in the in your chart is 41 weeks. Right. And we know statistically most first-time moms go seven to ten days post dates, which statistically now brings you to 42 weeks, and we actually don't have a full term, right? Yeah. So it can really affect. Absolutely. We, we had a mom transfer into our care at 36 weeks and a couple of days. Late into care, first-time mom. 
She was with a care provider who wanted to induce her at 36 weeks. She Why? was concerned that the baby was very, very big. The mother had a high BMI, and she was of Hispanic descent. Um, there, no other real information beyond that, but she was anticipating that the mother's blood pressure was potentially going to go up. She was anticipating that the mother was going to develop preeclampsia, although she was running, right? We can do a various, various things to identify if you're developing preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. So she was doing what's called a comprehensive metabolic panel, a CMP, twice weekly. This is pr- prior to she co- her okay. coming into my care. So all of her lab work was indicating that she had no signs of preeclampsia. Her blood pressures were, were with, in normal range. They were not high blood pressures. And her, there was no protein in her urine based on a certain urine test, not just a dipstick, mm-hmm. but based on some urine cultures that we can do. So there were no medical indicators of preeclampsia. Yeah. Um, her indicators were high BMI, um, first baby, Hispanic descent, um, although there were no medical indications. So the doctor wanted to induce her at 36 weeks. The mother declined induction. It's not even full term. Right. And came into our care. Had beautiful blood pressures. Blood always remained normal. Never had any signs of preeclampsia. Spontaneously went into labor at about 39 and a half weeks pregnant. Had a beautiful, uncomplicated, precipitous, lovely... It wasn't precipitous. It was just this lovely first... I mean, it was just a dream birth. It was like a six-hour labor. And she birthed at 38 and a half weeks a just under seven-pound baby. Wow. To imagine what that baby's size so would have been at, at 36. 36 weeks. So two and a half weeks earlier... That would have been trouble. We had a... Say it was a seven-pound baby, we potentially would have had a five-and-a-half... A premature baby. Baby, premature, poor lung development, Ugh. would have wound up in the NICU, most likely, for poor lung development, mm-hmm. and we would have increased the complications to this baby. It wouldn't have breastfed. It wouldn't have had skin-to-skin... Thank goodness that she so, had the mind to Very change. brave of her. It is. It's That's hard. hard to say it's no to your provider. It's hard to say no to that. And she was also an incredibly educated woman. She understood what her lab work said. That's awesome. She Informed. She was very informed prior to coming into our care. Mm-hmm. She was very informed, but she was feeling really stressed out and bullied by her care provider. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And it was unfortunate, and she wound up having this really lovely, uncomplicated birth. Um, now, if she, had, if she had creeping high blood pressures, there were indicators that she was becoming preeclamptic. Absolutely, there should have been medical sure. intervention. Because preeclampsia can really turn on a dime, oh, yeah. right? And it can be very, very dangerous. And we don't want to risk a mother or a baby, especially if we have a f- full-term healthy baby and we have risk factors that can compromise that, let's get the baby out. Yeah. But if we don't have but those that risk factors, case, yeah. that was not the case. So every person needs to be looked at individually. Mm-hmm. So if you are in the situation where you're feeling pressured to be induced, you have the right to ask some questions to your care provider and not in an angry or combative way, but to say me the money. (laughs) Yeah. You might not want to say those words exactly, but you might say to your care provider, I appreciate your concern with me. Can you help show me, can you help me Mm -hmm. understand why we're going to go forward making those choices? Can you give me some information that shows me that these choices are appropriate? And I'm not trying to be Dr. Google, and I'm not trying to, like, just what my friend said, right. that she didn't have to be induced, right? I'm, 
you can engage your care you provider. You have to advocate for yourself. Yeah, though. and it's very hard to advocate mm-hmm. for yourself, but there's some language you can use. Always bring someone who is supportive of you to your prenatal visits because it's always helpful to have a neutral person at your prenatal visit with you that's not emotionally attached, kind yeah. of. Like if you have a friend that you feel is neutral or your, your, or your partner for sure, mm-hmm. um, but someone that's not fearful or intimidated by your care provider right? that can help you kind of navigate and remember what your questions are and hear what's coming from you neutrally. Like if you have anybody that's sick, if you've ever gone through any kind of health condition. It's good n- to have an advocate. Right? Not including pregnancy. Like mm-hmm. say yeah. you're going through cancer treatment. Yeah. Um, you want to bring someone who can listen to the information yes. And absorb more than you can because you're so emotionally invested. Mm-hmm. Half the time you forget your questions. The other half is you hear this information and it triggers us, yes. right? I fall into the same place. I mean, mm-hmm. I rarely go to the doctor because A, I'm too stubborn, and B, I have healthcare providers in my practice that can run my labs and do my paps and do all that stuff. But when I do have to go to a doctor, I get so, like... I do too. I just forget. I have like so many questions and then I get there and I'm like, I should have wrote those I questions wrote down. I should have wrote those questions down. And they say, how have you been feeling? I'm like, great. Great. I go, great. And they're like, okay, see you next time. And I walk out and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot to tell them I you walk out the headaches. door. I forgot to tell yeah. them this. So it's always good to have a, a person with you, especially when you're pregnant because it's a very emotional state, mm-hmm. especially when we're talking about things that your provider might say, like, well, you know, you're endangering your baby. ACOG had to write a position paper saying it is inappropriate to use fear as a tactic to coerce your patient to do what they want to do. So clearly, if they had to write a position paper on it, it exists. Yes. Correct? It does. It does exist. And so that's inappropriate. So if you're feeling frightened by your healthcare provider, your midwife, your doctor, your nurse practitioner, whomever it is... That might be an indicator that you're not getting enough information. But if you can sit and have a conversation with your care provider and say, look, I have some more questions. I understand my time might be up here. Can I, can you send me some literature via email? Can you send me home with some literature that I can look at? I understand that you don't have an hour to sit with me face-to-face if you're with an obstetrician. They just they can't give you that much yeah. time. It is just not how the medical model runs in the U.S., Fortunately for midwives, we work a little bit differently so we can give you that time. But obstetricians, they really can't. It's, yeah. it's not appropriate to think that you can sit down with your OB for an hour unless there's a prearranged time frame for you, mm-hmm. right? But you can say in that setting, I have some questions I'd like to go over right away. I understand that you might not be able to answer all of my questions today, but if you can give me some literature, some websites I can go to, some written stuff that I can look at that I can review on my own and then we could maybe have a phone consult mm-hmm. or an email exchange later, I would appreciate that. I feel like this topic here should be its own podcast because there I have so much to how say. How to about talk it. to your healthcare like, provider? Yeah, not just how to talk, but like there's a lot of especially as of late I've seen a lot of stories coming out of women who felt bullied by their yeah. providers. And I know that they're actually like even in my own experience with an OB. I I am a you know me. I'm very strong woman. I'll I'll say my you're piece quite to. assertive. Yeah. So I <laughs> you're quite assertive. I love it. Um, I love that in word. a good way. In a good way. But I would go and ask these questions because they wanted to induce me right, and I was like 
first baby. Why, and, yeah, and first why did baby. they want to induce you? Because I was at 40 weeks. Okay. And I, and I did push back on that. And she was like, mm, uh, you know, it's almost like I felt like she was making me feel stupid for asking. And I think that's a lot of what women are feeling sometimes. Yeah. It's like we, no matter how we approach it, the doctor's right. Yeah. And now, t- in the defense of the doctor... Remember, they're seeing a, a lot, lot of people yeah. all day long, and everyone has a different level of understanding, mm-hmm. and um, and they're they're fielding so many questions, and and they do this all the time, right? Doctors are very well trained; they're terrific surgeons. They have a lot of knowledge that we don't have. Mm-hmm. Certainly, as a midwife, I defer to our physicians sure. for a lot of things because they know a lot more than I know about non-normal. Is that the right word? Non-normal? Low, high risk. High That's risk what I'm first. Say. High go. risk. I know a lot about low risk. They know a lot about high risk. So I will absolutely defer if I have a question about high risk. Mm-hmm. And so to their defense, they get some questions all day long, and they don't want to have to always justify. And you come in and like, you know, I heard that... I never have to be induced because my baby can just be inside my body forever. And, well, that's not really true. Or um, I heard, I don't, I feel fine and I don't think I have high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not about how you feel. So to their defense, they answer a lot of questions all day long. They are limited in in their time. They also have a tremendous amount of liability. Mm. And if we have a healthy mother and a healthy baby, I would rather induce you and get your baby out of your body before there can be then have a liability issue sure. because that is a that's a significant factor in the United States. Obstetrics is the highest litigated field. We are California is one of the highest litigating states, and that's obstetrics crazy. is the highest litigated field. Mm-hmm. And if there is a bad outcome, everyone wants to blame their care provider, yeah. whether or not it had anything to do with your care provider being inappropriate. Sure. And I'd like to believe and assume that most of the time the care providers are giving good care. Mm-hmm. And I think that they are. I absolutely and, believe that they are. And, and they're doing a lot of fetal right. surveillance, but they're going to err on the, on the way conservative side, um, almost to the point of where we have a high rate of cesarean sections. We yes. have a lot of babies in neonatal intensive care yes. units. We have mothers that are having complications from cesarean births. We have more mothers and babies dying in the United yeah, States. Yeah, I was going to say our mortality country. rate is we don't have great outcomes, out of control, but we and in a country that it really yeah shouldn't we be. don't have great outcomes mm-hmm. and we have very high cesarean rates, um, and and because we base a lot of the under the obstetrical model of care. Ooh, the podcast might have gotten really loud at that moment because I got fine. super close to the microphone. <laughs> um, we base a lot of our protocols in the obstetrical model of care based on liability mm-hmm. versus what's in the mother's and baby's best interest. Mm-hmm. Now, I, so I encourage you to get a care provider that you can work with as a team. It is a team. Yeah. And we do need to consult outside of our team sometimes here at the birth center. We work with maternal fetal medicine. We work with obstetricians. We work with endocrinologists. We work with a variety of people to make sure that we're giving good care. Sure. Um, and the job of the pregnant person is to feel like they trust their care providers and their questions are being answered. They might not be answered the way they want it, the way they the, the way that you want it, mm-hmm. or in 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 the immediate at that prenatal visit. Yeah. But you can always have a voice and you can always ask for more information before you make a decision. Right. So I think that the solution here that Renee would never say herself. 
is that mm-hmm. you should hire a midwife. <laughs> I think um, having... Because there are good doctors out there and stuff, but man, the experience is different with a midwife. It is, and there are good providers everywhere. We have good midwives, we have good doctors, we have some people that are not working very evidence-based and maybe anecdotally or yeah, don't have yeah. that history, right? It's There's true. good and bad everywhere. everywhere. That's true, because there are, there are stories of midwives gone wrong as yeah, well as, as doctors well. gone and wrong. And you hear, so. like, chiropractors. Oh, I love my chiropractor. I hate my chiropractor. Oh, yeah, my midwife yeah. is great. Oh, my midwife did this crazy thing. So, so we do don't, your homework. Right, and not all doctors are terrible, and yeah. not all doctors are the be-all and the end-all, right? Every, right? There's a varying degree of skill. Yes. In all fields. And it's funny that you say that because I remember you once saying to me that when people come and interview with you, you mm-hmm. wish that they would be less about, oh, it feels right. I like the way this place yes. feels. I like, And more about, like, ask me questions that matter, right? Like, right. And so we'll often do that. So a client will come in and they're like, oh, I really love it here. It's so pretty. It's and right behind like, my baby. It feels like as, as um, pregnant people, we're often emotional about those choices. Mm-hmm. So then at the... When they're done asking their questions, I say, okay, well, let's go over some things you didn't ask. Perfect. Um, this is some, these are some questions you might want to ask, and we encourage you to interview three different people, yeah. which in the obstetrical model, it's very hard to interview doctors, it is. right? It is. So now that you're at your due date, right, you're at 40 weeks, now is not really the time <laughs> that you're going to switch care providers. No. So when you go to your first initial prenatal visit, you might want to have a list of questions. How do you feel about my due date? Mm-hmm. What are you basing this due date on? Um, what happens if I go past 41 weeks? Why would you induce yeah, What me? is your stance on these things? What is your stance on these? What would be the medical indications for an induction? Those are questions you can start asking very, very early in your pregnancy. Right. Because the so, further you go in, the harder it is to transfer. Yes. Isn't there like a cut? Like most people, no. well, there's not? Well, I feel like there's an I, insurance speak, thing where... Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. It depends on what kind of insurance you have. Um, But we have been able, in our practice, we are able to transfer people into care very late. I know you're able to transfer out. We could transfer out. But you also have, like, I remember when I was under your care, I had to go see We have a collaborative. Right. Was it Yash that I went and saw? Yeah. But my insurance would only cover if I got transferred if I went to them and saw him for my 35-week appointment or something. It's not your insurance. So the way it works with going late into care to another provider. So say you're with an OB and you don't, suddenly they're like 36 weeks, they start talking about your induction and you start to get really nervous. Mm -hmm. You, there are providers who will take you late into care. Not everybody will. So sure. it is harder because... It's harder for you and it's harder for them. Right. And their, their caseload is probably full. Mm-hmm. That um, makes sense. As midwives, we often have relationships with obstetricians in a um, somewhat collaborative way mm-hmm. that we can say, oh, call so-and-so or so-and-so, or maybe we can make, we can make a phone call on your behalf and see if we can arrange transfer to someone, mm-hmm. and that's usually acceptable. It's harder for a pregnant person to be with an OB and decide to move obstetrical providers mm-hmm. late From one in doctor pregnancy. to another doctor. It's not often because of insurance unless you have a restrictive HMO. Mm-hmm. It's because the obstetricians don't have room on their calendar. Right, and I imagine um, it's difficult, too, without, like, a full... I mean, you get the history and stuff, right? Like, you get charts you and do, everything. You do, but, but there's no... Yeah, there could be I don't some really risk know. there. Uh, it would be interesting to have an obstetrician speak on why they wouldn't that would take somebody late into care. As midwives, some midwives won't take you late yeah. into care. We, depending on your circumstances, will take you late mm-hmm. into care. But you have to have had good prenatal care. 
you have to have all your records. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to review those records before you ta- we take you in to make sure there are no pre-existing conditions. Right. But once you get to that due date, that's not the time to transfer care necessarily. Yeah. So those are questions you want to ask ahead of time. But remember, your due window is between 37 and 42 weeks. We have a full-term baby. Some women do gestate to 43 weeks. Fetal surveillance starting at 41 weeks is appropriate every, you know, twice a week, every two to three days to make sure your fluid level is good, the baby's heart rate is good. There are no conditions identifying that the baby needs to be born within the next 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Those are also indicators. Sometimes we say, oh my gosh, there's, your fluid is so low, no matter how much you've hydrated. Yeah, let's go in and get the baby out. Totally appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. So then you feel more comfortable with those decisions and our goal is that you never look back on the birth and wonder why did those things happen. Sure. Right? So the takeaway from this today is ask questions early in your pregnancy. Yeah. Know that your due window is 37 to 42 weeks. ACOG even says that without any pre-existing conditions, if everything looks great, it's not inappropriate to expectantly wait, expectant management, up to 42 weeks plus six days. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming the non-stress is good, the biophysical profile is good, everything is looking good. Um, and most women will not gestate past 43 weeks, but there's not enough data for them to even say what is a perfect gestational age. So that's important for you to know. Yeah. And um, your baby's not just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in there. Not all women know when they ovulated. Um, not all women had early ultrasounds to identify a good window of time. Mm -hmm. Even if you did IVF, even if we know we implanted on this this day, we don't know how long you uniquely will gestate a baby. Right. You can be a short gestator or a long gestator and every baby is different. So that's the takeaway from today. Do your homework, interview your care providers, read the research, ask for more information if you don't understand Know that all babies will be born generally full term. We know that full term is generally before 42 weeks. Statistically, most first-time moms will go 7 to 10 days post-dates spontaneously. Um, And there you have it. Awesome. Okay. I hope that helps. And thanks for joining us today. I encourage you to participate in the conversation here. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love a review because that bumps us up, I think, on our, like... It helps us out. It helps us out. More people can see it. Share it with your friends. Um, You could also check us out on Facebook for our Facebook Lives every Mm -hmm. Monday and our YouTube channel. And um, we're everywhere. Just go to uh, scvbirthcenter.com. Yes. And, and you can find links to the podcast, links to the YouTube, all the links, all the, the links, links, the links. And um, we hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to our episode today. If you want to learn more about the SCV Birth Center and our other resources, be sure to check out our website at scvbirthcenter.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with a friend and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Your kind words and sharing means the world to us.